All right, we're continuing our series on the church. And I want us to begin by thinking about how do we view the church? Because for many of us, and we live in a consumer culture, and it's easy to create our vision of the church and uh, have our list of essentials. But it's important that we see the church as Scripture does. What are the essentials within God's Word? So I've heard someone that all of us, most of us respect say that the church is sinning if music sounds a certain way. Some people think chairs are sinful. Some people didn't want to stay in this church because pews are intimidating. Uh, I know people who have left churches because the pastors have told too many stories. Uh, this guy, and I still stand by that, um, I'm not the only one. But I also know people who have left churches because the pastors didn't tell enough stories, also because of this guy. And when we think about the church, there are so many reasons where our personal preferences go into deciding on what makes a good church or how we determine a church, why we choose one over another. Or some people may even hop from church to church as their preferences shift from week to week. But the real question here is, as we're spending time critiquing the church, are we are we being the church? That's really what's at stake here. Because when you spend time criticizing something and picking apart what is what is wrong with it or what you'd like to see. That is time taking away from actually contributing to it and building it up. So in our men's study this past week, the. Chapter in Kent Hughes' book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, talked about friendship. And you brought up a very important point. To be a good friend or to have friends, you must be friendly yourself. What are you doing to encourage friendship, strong, godly friendship? And this is what we're going to discuss this morning. What are you doing to encourage and build up the church? Because the Bible never speaks about how we structure a church service. The Bible never tells us to call it a service. The Bible never speaks about the type of building. I mean, the early church, especially in Acts, would have loved to have buildings and air conditioning. The Bible never speaks about what type of seats were to have or what type of music were to have. And all the things that people love to bicker about and divide over. God is not concerned with those things. If he was, he would tell us in his word where we are to sit, how we are to sing, what our buildings are to look like and the shape of our gathering spaces. But the Bible speaks at length and in detail about what Christian fellowship is to look like. The Bible is very specific on how we function together. And so my prayer is that as churches begin to gather all around the country and all around the world the next few weeks and months, that they look to Scripture and not to their own preferences. My prayer is that during this time of our mini exile, we will examine ourselves and examine our hearts. And am I working to build up and encourage and strengthen the church? Or am I just being a detractor because I'm putting my preferences before biblical convictions? And so for us, spoiler alert, we will be meeting next week in person here, us. Amen. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that after. But I want us to think about that. As we come back together, what type of church will we be? 
What will we be known for? What will we emphasize? And this is a good time to examine where we place importance on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday night, and throughout the week. Are we the church day in and day out? So that's where we find ourselves, because this morning we're in Romans 12. Last week we looked at how the sacrificial work of Christ in Hebrews 10 reconciles us. It gives us access to God. It gives us a confession that we can hold to and put our hope in. It also gives us the ability and the privilege to gather so that we can encourage one another and stir one another on to love and good deeds. And this morning is how that finished work of Christ, the sacrificial work of our spotless lamb, brings us together in Christ and in one another and how in fellowship we encourage one another and how that's worked out in the life of the church. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to be reading the entire chapter, but we're going to focus on 3 through 13. I love this chapter. This is probably the most complete chapter in the entire Bible on the identity and responsibility of the church. And I think it's helpful that we get it in its context. And I'd love to teach on the entire thing, but we're going to draw some uh, some helpful lessons from the entire chapter. But again, our focus will be on 3 through 13. If you have your Bibles, open up with me. Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, your, your word is complete, perfect, good. Let us hold fast to it. 
Let us abhor what is evil. Let us hate what you hate. Let us spurn off the things of the world that we may cling to you and hold fast to our confession. But not to the extent that we take vengeance in our own hand and respond in sinful anger, but that we can rest in your sovereignty over all things. Lord, we praise you. This is the God who has brought your people together as your church. Lord, we praise you. It's the God who took on flesh that he might become our head, that we might be knit together in him, that we might be unified in identity and purpose through him. Lord, we praise you for the spirit that gives gifts to all of his people. The spirit that teaches us who Christ is and what he has done reminds us of who we are in him and equips us that we may complement one another and build each other up. And Lord, that is my prayer this morning, that we learn to be your church, not just to critique it, try to mold it into our image, but live as your church, live as your people to encourage one another, to build each other up so that you would be glorified, so that you would be exalted. So that when the world looks at us, they see you. They see what you have done in us, that your name may ever be on our lips, that we may declare it is because of Jesus Christ that I do what I do, that I love the way I love, that I serve the way I serve, so that the Father may be glorified because of what the Spirit is doing in me, that they that may run off of our lips so quickly and may sound like honey in the ears of those who are lost and dying. As we live as your people and your ministers and your ambassadors in this world, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our outline this morning, again, I'm going to address the entire chapter. Uh, so first, we're going to look at our identity in one through two and where we are in the book of Romans. Which I love Romans. And this is the transition from the indicative to the imperative section. The end of chapter 11 finishes with the word amen. And that tells us that something has finished, something has been declared as true. This is all of God's redemptive history and his plan as Paul lays out his gospel explanation. And so our identity, what we do with who we are, begins in verse 1. And we're going to look at our unity in 3 through 5, the diversity within the unity in 6 through 8, and then our personal piety, how we are to act in 9 through 13, and then our charity or Christian love at the remainder of the chapter. And we're just going to use that as further exhortation. So, like I said, chapters 1 through 11 is Paul's gospel explanation. The gospel that is the power of God for salvation. The gospel that finds its fullness in the propitiation of Christ. That perfect sacrifice, the new Adam, that brings us from our sin and lostness with no hope of any good within ourselves. Our justification that we stand on. That we continue without sin. That we hold fast to Him and the Spirit that He sent that makes us sons. The Spirit of adoption that makes us cry out to the Father that knows that the love of the Son seals us. This plan that was before all time through election that unifies Jew and Gentile. 
now we find ourselves. This is what Paul is referring to when he says, I appeal to you. His appeal is now his imperative directive to the church. The indicative, what is chapters 1 to 11 now leads to the appeal. To you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, the mercies of God, everything in 1 through 11. Those are the mercies of God. God, who would send his son to save you, who are wicked, who would never choose him, who hate him in your hearts. By his mercy, you could be redeemed and become his. Out of that mercy comes our identity. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Meaning, every day, everything we do is an act of worship. Our entire bodies, all that we are, are presented before the Lord. This is how we show our allegiance and our obedience to him. And we do it with a joyful heart because that heart has been transformed. And do not be conformed to this world, verse 2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In our regeneration, our hearts of stone are turned into hearts of flesh, and it beats with spiritual life for the first time. But our minds are renewed as well. We do not think the way we used to think. We do not think as the world thinks. We are not conformed to the world's way of thinking. But our minds are transformed. Why do we do that? That... By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what he desires for his people, a holy people who are set apart to a holy God. And so this is where we find ourselves. Verse three, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone. So he begins here by the grace given to me. Paul starts out with, I'm an apostle. I have authority. Christ speaks to me. And through the Holy Spirit, I speak words of revelation, inspired scripture. But it is only by God's grace. It is not of my own authority. It's not anything of myself. And everything that I say is by God's grace and from God's grace. And he speaks to everyone, meaning no one is exempt from this. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. In the Greek here, this is the same word form used four times. It's more literally, do not think higher of yourselves than you should think, but think with reasonable thinking. This word means to process for understanding. This is what it means to have a renewed mind. That your thinking does not exalt yourself. Your thinking is sober and it is and it is reasonable. So guard your minds. The first thing we must do. Before we can use our gifts, before we can encourage one another, before we can use, uh, uh, love one another, we cannot be arrogant. We must guard and watch our minds so that we have a right understanding and a right thinking when we approach our brothers and sisters. And so why? Why do we need to guard our, our, our minds and, and, and how, can we, how can we put that in perspective? Look at the latter half of the verse. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Why? Because God has assigned your measure of faith. God has assigned your measure of understanding. This is a call to humility within the church. How could we ever boast? How could we think highly of ourselves? God's given it to us. And if he hasn't given it to you, then it's good. Because it's in his perfect plan. If he has given it to you, praise him for it. 
And this is an, an amazing idea of God giving each according to measure that he has assigned. How could we ever be prideful? Nothing is of our own. We don't choose our spiritual gifts. We don't choose our measure of faith, just like we don't choose the color of our eyes or the size of our feet. But this is all tied to our thinking. Do not think too highly of yourself. This C.S. Lewis quote I use so often, but it's very applicable, especially here. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Now, thinking less of yourself, self-deprecation, that is false humility. That's actually pride. Because when you're constantly beating yourself up and constantly putting yourself down, you're thinking about yourself all the time. Pride is thinking too much of yourself. But humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often. Putting others before you. Not spending all of your time focusing on yourself. You cannot serve the body. You cannot encourage other people if you're so much in your own head that you have no room for anyone else. And this is such a great reminder that our talents, our gifts, even the measure of faith is a gift from God. And it's a good thing. Praise him. If you have a faith of a mustard seed, if you if you're a one talent person, praise him. If you're a 10 talent person, praise him because he will use what he has given you for his glory. He doesn't need you but he chooses to give it to you. This is meant to be an encouragement and take the pressure off of us. We can breathe a sigh of relief. I don't have to be like him. I don't have to be like her because this is what God has assigned to me and I will be faithful with what he's given me, whether little or much. And so that sets us up for one of the primary analogies for the church, for As in one body, we have many members. We use this language all the time, the church as a body. And this applies directly to our physical bodies. For as in one body, we have many members. We have hands, we have elbows, we have knuckles, and all those things that make the body function. Even though each are independent, they are dependent on one another. We are a living unit with diversified parts working with a unified purpose. But everybody has one head. I love what H.B. Charles says about this. That He says anything with, with two heads is a monster. And anything with, with no head is dead. We have one head. And it is Christ. And we are all knit to him with one directive and one purpose. This is why we read from 1 Corinthians 12 earlier. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. 1 Corinthians 12 is an expanded version of what we see in Romans 12. But this analogy of the body, Paul works out in brilliant detail and in perfect argumentation as he does. I just want to bring a couple things to your attention. 1 Corinthians 12, picking up in verse 12. For just as the body is one and as many members and all members of the body, uh, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. This is who we are as the body of Christ. We are united by his spirit in Christ. Although we are members, we may look different. You may be an elbow, you may be a toenail, whatever you think is insignificant, but you are still part of the body of Christ. And it is valuable because of Christ and because of the spirit that he has put within it. 
Skip down to verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Be satisfied with your role in the body. Be satisfied with your gifts. Rejoice in it because God has arranged you and he has put you there perfectly. Just like a chessboard. The pawns may seem insignificant, but the pawns are valuable. They are powerful. They can become a queen. And every, every piece on the chessboard has its purpose, just like every member of the body. And we need each other. We need these different members. Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. We've got diversity and unity. Picking back up in the middle of verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Meaning there is no un- or insignificant parts or uh, invaluable or parts. That there may be no division in the body. But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That is how we are to look. We are so unified that if you are hurting, I'm hurting. That if you are rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. And that we come alongside and cry with those who cry and celebrate with those who celebrate. And so when we say that a body has many members, this is what we mean by church membership. I'm not talking about Sam's Club or the YMCA or anything else where you, you, you pay a due and you get this benefit. We're talking about a living organism that cannot live without one another. That I'm a living, functioning member of the body of Christ. And the body needs me and I need it. Just like if I were to sever my arm off, my arm would die and have no use. If you're severed from the body, you would die and have no use. We need one another. We are members of one another. We do not all have the same function, but we all belong to the same body. Verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The emphasis here is on the unity. Yes, there are parts, but it is the body that matters. Yes, the nose is important. Yes, the mouth is important, but it is the body that matters. The nose serves the body. The mouth serves the body. And their emphasis is on the unity. We're not robbed of our individuality, but we're gifted with it for the sake of the body, for the sake of the other members. There's an interdependence in our individuality. God has made us different, and that's a good thing. As Paul says, if all were a nose, where would be the body? And so we meet and we come together as the body so that we can meet mutual needs and benefits. When the nose smells that there's gas in the kitchen, the entire body gets out and is saved. When the hand can reach out and stop something from harming you, the entire body is saved. And this is what we do. We protect and encourage one another. And this is the beauty of Christianity. Because in Eastern thought, the emphasis is on the group, on the collective, the minimizing of the individual. And in Western thought, it's the exaltation of the individual. This rugged individuality at the expense of the group, at the expense of the collective. But in Christianity, we get both. There's an emphasis on our unity, on the collective, but also a celebration of our diversity on the individual. And we get the best of both worlds. So this is where we transition from our unity to our diversity. As Paul goes on here in verse 6, having gifts 
that differ according to the grace given to us. Gifts according to God's grace, just like faith, just like talents, grace, unmerited favor. Your gift, it's a good thing. It's a present, but it is by God's grace, not according to something you've earned or something you've done. And we need to see them as gifts. And elsewhere, Paul speaks of them as spiritual gifts. These are gifts given by the Holy Spirit. God sent his son that he might send his spirit, that he might gift us so that we would serve him in the body with these particular gifts. And so if they're given to us by grace, again, should we have any reason to boast? The Lord has gifted me to speak. Does that give me any reason to boast? Any more than those who serve or those who have acts of, acts of mercy, those who sweep the floor unto the Lord? The one who sweeps the floor unto the Lord is more blessed than the one who speaks for his own pride. And also, we have no reason to resent our gifts because it is by God's grace and according to his purpose, purpose, perfect plan. And also, we have no reason to worry about comparing ourselves to, to others. I mean, this is something we're always tempted to do. I wish I could do this better. I wish I could do what he did or do what, what, what she did. God has not made a mistake when he's made you. God has not made a mistake when he gave you your gifts. What does Paul say here in verse 6? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. They're all valuable. We use them. We put them to use for the building up of the body, for the strengthening of Christ's church. Not your church, not my church. We are members of his body under our head. We want our head to be glorified. So I want to walk through each of these. I won't spend a whole lot of time on them. Explain them briefly and give an example of each. And so what's important to understand here in this list as he picks up in the end of verse 6 is this is not an exhaustive list. This is a representative list. Because uh, Paul uses different lists in different letters. And, or, and uh, there's one in Ephesians and one in 1 Corinthians. And he uses different terms. And so I think the idea here is to show that the body will differ in how the body functions. And so we, the other thing is we don't know exactly how these function in the church. We know these are not offices, that these are not official roles, but these are character giftings that are applied in the body. And so what we can learn from them, and, and, and the point is not how this works out or what exactly is prophecy or what exactly is, is exhortation, but the point is, is that they're all needed and they're all good. And that they are all meant to complement one another and not one at the exclusion of another. And what is also important is that your gifts are not your own. You have been given them for the building up of others. And if we understand that, that my gifts complement the other gifts within the church, my gifts are not my own. Mine are a gift from God by his grace. Then it is so much easier to serve and use them unto the Lord. All right. Let's walk through these. Number one, uh, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. This is so debated. Uh, I would say right up front, we do not know exactly how prophecy function in the church. Um, but essentially, we, we know that when the prophets in the Old Testament spoke, they declared divine will. It was a proclamation. It was less explanation and more proclamation. So that there, there was that function within the, the church, and it's throughout history it's been most closely associated with preaching. So we'll go with that. Uh, we're not entirely sure, but here's what we do know. 
Acts 13.1, it's a cooperation with the teaching ministry of the church. There are teachers and there are prophets. Um, there's an understanding divine mysteries and knowledge in 1 Corinthians 13.2. So there's a, there's, it cooperates with, with teaching. There's an understanding uh, going on. But the purpose of it in 1 Corinthians 14 is for building up encouragement and consolation. And so everything we do is to build up, to encourage, to console the body. And so obviously preaching is, is the direct outpouring of this. But to, to prophesy, to declare divine will doesn't have to happen from a pulpit or on a street corner with a megaphone. But we all should be passionate about declaring God's goodness and God's promises. And it says here that you do it in proportion to our faith. Every one of us in our lives will have the opportunity to shy away from or shrink away from the good news of the gospel or declare it, to speak God's word to those who need it, to build up, to console, or to convict those who are in their sin. So you've got prophecy, verse 7, if service in our serving, this the word we use here, diakonos, for deacon. Those who serve, those who minister. And so many of you are fantastic servants. There are those who are set apart for the office of deacon. But we're all called to serve. To put others' needs before ourselves. To meet the needs of others. To rejoice when my, my brother or sister is built up by something I could contribute and doing it unto the Lord. The one who teaches in his teaching. So this is more the expounding of the divine will. Less declaring it and more explaining it. And um, explaining it and applying it. So taking God's word so people can understand it and apply it to their lives. The teachers would often break down what the prophets had declared. And this goes hand in hand with our next one, exhortation. It means to encourage. Uh, essentially, this, this idea is to call someone to comfort or encouragement. It's, it's beckoning them to be encouraged in the Lord. And these two things go hand in hand. This is why we teach. We don't just teach for information's sake so we can rack up more data in our heads. But we teach so that God's word comforts us and instructs us and grows us and encourages us. And this exhortation, this encouragement of building up the saints is essential to a healthy church. You cannot have a healthy church without the encouragement of the saints for one another. And it contributes to the strength and the joy of the church. It goes on. The one who contributes in generosity. These two phrases are hard to, to translate. But the one who contributes is the one who gives a share. And in generosity is literally in simplicity. So the one who gives a share in simplicity doesn't really ring true to our ears. But the, the sense here is that you give freely and out of pure motives. That there's, there's no hypocrisy in your giving. There's, there, there's no ulterior design. You give simply. You give freely. And you give a share of what God has given you. The giving is not of yourself, just like what you have received initially is not of yourself. There's a, a stewardship that has been entrusted to you. So that you can contribute. And the Lord has blessed some that they can contribute much. But every contribution is pleasing to the Lord. Just like the widow with the two mites. And it is all for 
giving to God's body out of what he has given us. And this is why we're all called to recognize we're stewards of everything we have. The house that you have, the clothes on your back, the money in your pocket, even the very gifts that he has given you, you are a steward of. So this is why we we tithe and give back to the Lord first, because we trust him. Because we thank him for what he's given us. That's why we give offerings above and beyond tithes. Because we have abundance, especially in our country, in our culture. Every one of us has more clothes than we need and more food than we need. And we give out of that abundance so that the body is built up. When we tithe and we give offerings, it benefits the entire body. It supports those who minister. And it gives us a place to gather and resources to equip the saints. And so some have been given much and they will contribute much. But all of us should be contributing so that the body is built up through our gifts. He continues, the one who leads with zeal. The word leads here to rule or to manage. I mean, some are wired to be confident and compelling. And those we recognize in the body, they are elders. And our role as elders is follow me as I follow Christ. But all of us will lead in some manner. Many of you in this body, in a small body, we will call on you to lead a study or to lead a small group or to lead a task. And you do that with, with, with zeal. You do that with excitement. You do that with, with fervor because you're doing it unto the Lord because you're doing it for the sake of his body. And the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Acts of mercy. I love and admire those of you who have a heart for the broken and the downtrodden. Those who, who have a compassionate heart for those in need. And if that is you, own it. Rejoice in it. And use it for the sake and building up of the body. And it begins with needs within the body. We do it cheerfully. And then we look around for those we can minister to outside of the body. So again, this is not an exhaustive list, but it gives us an idea from the very public proclamation in the prophecy to the acts of mercy that may never be seen by most people. It is all good for the body. And some are more gifted in one area than the other, and that's okay. And all of us should overlap and have some measure of each of these gifts We often feel the need to compare ourselves to one another, especially if you don't have the more visible gifts. Let me tell you, your gifts, whatever they are, however God has wired you, they are helpful to the body and we need them. And the body is lacking when you are not using them to encourage and serve the body. And they are to be used in conjunction with with one another. And they are not to be used for the exclusion of one another. So that we're dealing with our gifts, the diversity within the body. Now we're going to deal with the piety in the body. Uh, piety, or it means a holy, reverent way of, of living. An attitude that comes out of our identity, being transformed people, and that should mark our gifts. doesn't matter if you're the best communicator in the world, or you serve 24 hours a day, but if it is not done out of love, It is for naught. This is where we pick up in verse 9. Let love be genuinely, literally love without hypocrisy. Kudos to the NASB and and, uh, New King James for this. 
Love without hypocrisy. This is strong language here. Not being two-faced, not being conflicted. Don't let your words and actions be contradictory. Let your love be consistent without hypocrisy because this is a matter of the heart. Don't just say one thing and have a cold and distant heart. And this actually sets up and encompasses the rest because a life of piety is a life of genuine love. And how do you let your love be genuine? Be By abhorring what is evil, hating, pushing it away, moving away from what the Bible calls is evil, not flirting with what the world flirts with. You push it away and you hate it. Hate what God hates and despise the things that are abominable in his eyes. But you cling, you hold fast to what is good. That is how you love your brothers and sisters. And this is what we are called to. Love one another with Philadelphia. Brotherly love. This Christian affection that even though we did not come out of the same womb, we are brothers. We are sisters. There is a love that unites us for eternity that is stronger than any other bond. Love one another with that type of affection. And in that love, outdo one another. We can compete in so many ways. Um, But this is a worthwhile competition. Guys, like we will compete in anything that you set before us. But imagine if we competed in showing honor. Like I will honor and revere and hold up my brother. There's an old adage that I love here. It says, your deeds speak so loudly that I cannot hear your words. Yeah, that is incredible. If we are known for showing honor and encouraging one another, so much so that our words don't matter because our actions are speaking so much louder. And we should outdo each other in that. And continuing here, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. What slothful in zeal? What does that even mean? Essentially, don't lose your fire. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be enthusiastic in your love for one another and your honor for one another. Be excited in spirit and do it unto the Lord. We can be excited because everything we do is unto the Lord. Continuing on, verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. These things are inseparable and they're, they're, they're straightforward. They mean what, what, what they mean. So think about this. We can't always rejoice in our circumstances. But like last week, our hope is in our confession. Our confession is in a person. Jesus Christ, the God man. Who lived the perfect sinless life, who died for his people that their sins might be taken on him, that he might rise again, that his righteousness might, might be placed on them. So we cling to our hope. We rejoice in it because tribulation is coming. We can be patient in it. We can remember Christ and what he's done for us when tribulation and difficult times comes. And that is why we must be confident, constant in prayer. That's why at all times, in season and out of season, as Deshaun said earlier, one of the most important things we can do is pray without ceasing in tribulation and in, in, in rejoicing that we be a people who's constantly going before our God, not because he needs us, but because we need him. 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is a compliment to what we talked about earlier, those who contribute and generosity. This word here, though, 
same root word as the word fellowship. We come together in fellowship, it means to have in common. What does it mean to contribute to the needs of the saints? It means that you take a common shared interest in the needs of your brothers and sisters. Our first priority is sharing with and having in common with our brothers and sisters. And with our brothers and sisters, we seek to show hospitality. We seek it. Not just, oh, if they happen to be here, I will happen to make something for them. Look for opportunities. One of the things we do well, and I encourage us to keep doing, is make people feel at home when they come here. Invite people to your home. Seek to show hospitality. In this culture that does not look each other in the eye and has not looked each other in the eye for several weeks now, one of the greatest things you can do is make people feel welcome when they come to church. Make people feel welcome in your, in your home. Seek to show hospitality. The word in the Greek means love of a stranger. It's loving and caring for someone when it has no benefit to you. It is completely selfless. And I want to finish this section with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 25. This is what it means to seek to show hospitality. This is what our piety, our holy living should result in. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 35. Many of you are familiar with this, but think about this within the life of the church and especially in uh, how we minister to one another, first and foremost within the church, and then, of course, outside as well. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. Again, Matthew 25, 35. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, he is speaking to the saints here, to the church, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? Or when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers... You did it to me. How we treat the fellow saints, visiting one another, encouraging one another. That is how we show our love for the king and how we prove and live out our righteousness, seek to show hospitality. So quickly in this last section, because I can't go all through it, I want to just read it. I want to read it slowly as further exhortation. Spend some time in Romans chapter 12. And if you want to know what does the church look like? How should we view the church? This is a great place to start. But think about each of these phrases and try to envision in your mind, how well do I do that? How well do others do that? And those who do it well, seek to encourage them and encourage and challenge each other in these. Because I chose the word charity for our outline here. And not in the modern sense where charity means giving to a nonprofit, but in the classical sense. It is the highest form of love. It is the love that God has shown for us that just floods out of us as we love one another. This is what it means to show the love that God has given us through his son in the church and as being part of the church to the world around us. I want to read this and we'll close with just 
few exhortations from our passage. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. This is Christ's body. This is Christ's church. This is what we are to do and what we are to look like. So just kind of recapping and concluding. Our identity is that we have been transformed by the mercy of God. And that we are to present ourselves, all of ourselves, every part of you as spiritual worship. Renewing our minds and our hearts and our actions. Knowing that we were saved by God's grace alone, but we were not saved to be alone. And so there is unity. When we are saved, we are united to Christ and we are united to one another. And we are one body and members of each other. And in that body, there is diversity. And diversity is a good thing among the unity for the sake of the unity and for the building up of the body. And in that unity and in that diversity, we are called to lives of piety, holy living, set apart from the world, different than the expectations of the world, clinging to what is good, abhorring what is evil. And in those lives of piety, we are called to further charity, that everything we do is in love, a radical love in the sight of all, so that when people see us, People see the body of Christ. They see the church. And so let us be known as this type of church. I want you to meditate on this because when we come back together, remember this. And as we continue on, meditate on this so that this is what the church is known for, not buildings or seats or styles of music. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for bringing us together. Lord, we praise you in your perfect design of your church, your body, and your perfect calling on each one of us, giving us our gifts perfectly. Please help us to use them to build up one another, to encourage one another for the sake of the body. Those who have visible vocal gifts. Those who have quiet, hidden gifts. Let us be zealous in them. Let us do them for you as we are serving you. This is what your church may be known for. And Lord, I pray that as we come back together, we come back together. A church that is invigorated, that is purified, that is excited. And that we do not lose our zeal. Because we are redeemed people. 
called out by our Redeemer to be his body and his bride. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we go on and respond in song, I'm going to talk about what this will look like to me. And so uh, Jesse will reiterate it later. For those of you who don't stick around for the benediction, stick around for the benediction. Um, read your emails. We'll give details. Uh, but this will kind of be a soft opening. And so we know that many of you uh, are, are high risk and have concerns for your health. And we urge you to stay home and continue uh, in whatever your, your conscience directs. So we will stream our service. You will, will be able to watch it at home. Uh, but for those who want to gather, we encourage you to come. And so we encourage you to use precautions and use your, your best judgment. We'll have some directives about uh, coming in and going out and contact and things like that. But we want to come together as, as the body and, um, and do it joyfully and do it reasonably. And, um, and we look forward to the day when this scare is gone and we can all come together, all of the body united. So I look forward to seeing you face to face next week. Now, let's respond and praise our Savior who has made all this possible. Lift up the name of our head, Jesus Christ, our Lord.